Hello and welcome to Networks, the neuroscience of creativity. You're listening to Arshia Qasim, your host, and with this episode we introduce a new dimension to this program by having guest speakers with whom we discuss the process and the concepts of creativity. As my first guest for this program, I have with me Mr. David Beach, who is a management consultant, but he studies as a mechanical engineer uh, to begin with. He was diagnosed with dyslexia in childhood, but in his later years, he found creativity to be uh, a savior, and he has now started writing about his experiences of living and growing up with dyslexia, finding creativity as a medium of coping with it, and he manages two blogs. One of them is a photography blog and another where he discusses his life uh, experiences. David, welcome to this program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Uh, so I'm very excited because this is something new that I've uh, added on to my podcast. Uh, so far, we've been discussing creativity from a neurological or a neuroscientific point of view. And I've looked at the brain structures responsible for the creative process. Uh, there are many unanswered questions still because this is a budding field and something that has generated a lot of interest in the recent years. But what I would like to do is to have an actual insight into the process of creativity from a procedural perspective. People like yourself who find themselves in situations where they have to uh, find creative solutions to their problems. This is what I would like to focus on. So your story has been very inspiring from what we have spoken about. And I would like you to tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. Okay. And uh, you can recap everything that I've said in your own words. That okay. Would be very nice, yes. Okay, so, um, yeah, basically, when I was younger, I, I knew there was something different between me and uh, everybody else at school. Because when it came time to do any writing exercises, I just could not do the amount of writing we were meant to do. You know, when they would finish writing a whole page, I would still be writing the first third. So I knew there was something wrong, and um, I thought I was stupid. Um, in fact, my parents were once told by one of my teachers that I was stupid. You know, it was as simple as that. Well, luckily, um, one of my parents' friends overheard a conversation, and they said that, you know, they thought I was dyslexic. So I got tested, I was 10, mm -hmm. and it turned out I was. And suddenly it was this life-changing transformation. I wasn't stupid, there was just something different about my brain. Um, it's not broken, it's, it's just different. Um, the part of the brain that deals with speech is smaller. The part of the brain that deals with spatial awareness and mechanics and puzzles is much bigger. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, something that happens. Um, so I had help through school and I was given coping mechanisms and the further I got through school the more I was able to cope with it but the less creative I was. Right, why is that? Um, well I'm not sure if it was a, if I'm a child at the time I was born and in the UK in the 1980s and 1990s education was very restrictive. Right. You had to learn certain facts, you had to learn certain procedures. 
you couldn't learn to think for yourself mm. uh, like a lot of children these days get a chance to. So I just had to learn to pass an exam. And uh, the same was true at university. I was doing mechanical engineering degree. There was a lot of stuff to learn and it wasn't really given any time for free thinking, free, free thought. I certainly didn't do any creative arts or creative skills at that time. Right. And I got out from university and I realised that my creativity was almost non-existent. And it took me a long time to get it back. It took me about seven or eight years before I started getting it back. Right. Um, and when you think about it, when you start thinking about creativity, you just think about drawing or artwork or sculpture, but everything these days needs a creative solution. So you're answering all the questions that I already had. So the, my first question was going to be, what was it like growing up in the UK with the diagnosis of dyslexia when many people did not know it? And yes. you've, you've alluded to that. And my um, second question was going to be, how do you define creativity? So let's talk about yeah. both these issues because I think they're, they're both important okay. points to make. Yes. Firstly, uh, we've seen a recent trend in being more accepting of dyslexia. Mm. I can imagine when you were given a diagnosis, how was the reaction to Yes. Your... So, I mean, I've only heard of this from what my parents have told me. Right. So they went to the headmistress of my school and said, David's dyslexic. And she said, oh, I don't believe in dyslexia. Right. It doesn't exist. Wow. So he isn't dyslexic. Um, okay. So my parents then said, okay, well, if the, the school's not going to help, we'll find help for David. And luckily, um, there was a lady we knew who basically turned my life around. She yeah. was a teacher who'd retired early so that she could help dyslexic children. So I went there once a week for an hour's lesson and she trained me. Would it be too personal to ask you what kind of impediments you had with your dyslexia in the beginning? Um, well, I mean, you say at the beginning, I still have them. Right. Um, so for the, sometimes I'll be partway through a, a saying a sentence and I'll lose the next word. Right. And I've no idea what the next word will be. I can't even picture the next word, so it means I have to go back to the start and completely rewrite or re-say the sentence, or just try and think of a way around this hole. Another weird one is sometimes when people talk to me, their words stop being words in my head, they're just a sound. And so my brain then has to take the sound apart and put it into a letter and then put the words back together. And you can imagine when you're having a one-to-one -one conversation, that's not an, inter not an immediate uh, thing, it takes time. If no one's talked to me for a while, my connection between my hearing and my brain shuts down. And then when someone starts to me, it reconnects, but I miss the first few, the first few words of the sentence. Yeah. So then it's, you just hear something and you don't know the context. Um, writing is slow mm. and laborious. Um, and reading is slow and laborious. My son is a quicker reader than I am, and he's 13. Um, I mean, my, my age of write, reading peaked. I think uh, reading comprehension peaked at 13. So when you say this lady turned your life around, what measures did she take? So I was 10, mm. and we were getting ready to think of senior schools. Mm. And I just thought I'd go to the local comprehensive school. 
And if that had happened, I'd gone to the local comprehensive with problems. I would have been in a class where ch some children wouldn't want to, to learn and I couldn't learn. So I probably would have fallen in with the crowd who were just messing around in class. Because the, the problem is with dyslexia, often dyslexic people are very are highly intelligent, yes. but they can't channel it. Because in schools, you have to be intelligent in the way the school system wants. Right. And if you don't fit that mould, you'll, you'll drop out. I mean, Richard Branson is yes. dyslexic yes. and he left school at 16. I completely understand what you're saying. And although I grew up in the Middle East, uh, I went to a school that followed the British curriculum mm. and I can imagine that uh, there were standards that had to be met and it was only people who were able to cope with those stresses. Yes. Could, so, then, yeah. so then this lady helped me. I passed what was called an 11 plus, which meant I right. could go to grammar school. Yes. So suddenly I thought, oh, well, if I pass the exam, I can't be stupid. And then at the end of the first term they assessed us and I was in the top three of my class and oh, okay I passed an exam to get here and now I'm in the top three wow and then okay then so I'm not stupid right. okay it's just this dyslexia and then I guess over the next 15 years of education I found ways of handling my dyslexia mm. for instance um at university I would write everything that was said in an exam in a um lecture which is a stupid idea but I was scared of missing anything and what I realized was the words were going from my eyes to the paper without actually going through the mental part of my brain and so at the end of the evening I'd read my notes as if I hadn't even written them right. you know I didn't know anything but then there was no way I could reread that again and again so I would compress that information down to what was important and over the course of the year, I would compress and compress and compress so that when I got to my exams, I would have a two-page document, wow. which was all That's I needed. That's a lot of hard work. But, and doing that was then making sense of it in mm. my brain. The other thing I found was I would make things pictorial. Mm. You know, if a lecture was four or five pages, well, if I could do a drawing that was saying the same thing, a drawing I can pick up and look at and I've got a pictorial brain so I'm more likely to remember it. Mm. One of the great things about that is since then in my previous role that was a really... Yes, I can see an evidence of this on the, <laughs> in the notes that you've just handed me and I can see that you've used a good diagram yeah. to put spatial uh, meaning in that. That's so I used to do a job, I was b between the mechanical engineering and the management consultants, I was doing a solution architecture and no one understands it. And it was, a, it was a case of taking information down from a client and representing it to them in a way they could understand. That was always pictorial. Right. And it turned out that the coping skill that I'd learned as a child was now an added benefit as an Amazing. adult in wow. my career because it was setting me apart from everybody. Right. right. The other thing, the other, I actually see my dyslexia now as a benefit because it forced me as a child to realize I was different, to realize I could not compete with other children on normal terms. Right. I had to find my own way to compete, which meant I had to find shortcuts to learning stuff. Mm. I had to really understand myself to understand if I was learning. 
So because at university, if we were told to read 30 pages of a book, that would take me one, two, three days. I can't reread it again. So I've got to find a way of getting that information out quickly. Um, exams I couldn't do as quickly as anyone, anybody else. What that's done as I've got older is when I'm starting a new task or a new role, if I'm comparing myself with other people starting at the same time, they will be quicker because they will jump straight into it and they'll do it the normal way and they will get stuff done twice as quickly as me because I'm going through it very slowly and carefully. After a set period of time, though, I'm now quicker than them right. because I've been rethinking how to do the process and how to do the process for me. And it takes a while to fit the pieces together, but once they're together, it's really fast. So the, the strategies that you've described, in my mind, these are creative uh, methods. Mm. And this brings us to my next question, which you've already hinted at uh, previously. How do you define creativity? You were very right in saying that it's not limited to art and yes. writing, but... So it's, it's an interesting one. So for me, creativity is being able to generate something, mm. whether that's a new way of working, whether that's a new idea, whether it's a new strategy for a client, whether that's a new way of looking at a, a scene. Mm. If, you, if you have 10 people in front of a scene with a camera or with paints and pens, you'll get different things from everybody. And so their own creative idea goes into that. It's putting yourself into whatever you are creating, you know, your own identity. So I want to tie that in with uh, just to just to, you know, get things in proper perspective. You say that when you were diagnosed with dyslexia between then and uh, a long time after that, you felt that getting the coping mechanisms for dyslexia impeded your creativity. But yes. you, for you, creativity was a later discovery. That's right. I mean, it, it could have been the coping mechanisms. It could have been the school system. Right. It could have been a mixture of the two. Um, I mean, for instance, computers, personal computers were just coming out right. while I was at school. Yes. And I learned to touch type. Mm -hmm. So when I was 16, I was doing my GCSEs and I was doing coursework and I would do my history coursework and I would type it out and our teacher refused to take typed papers. They said, no, no, you've got to handwrite them. So then I would have to take my typed papers and handwrite them and it would take me four or five hours to just manually rewrite them. That was hours spent doing something that was ridiculous. Um, and the trouble was, the more I wrote, the more mistakes would come in. Um, so, yeah, this, this, it was working out how to just deal with it. When was the breakthrough of creativity from your perspective? Yeah, I've not actually thought about that. Um, so... Because whenever I've spoken to you, you seem to be very cognizant of what creativity is, mm -hmm. your own creative uh, methods, and the whole system of, of creativity, how the brain works out. So you, yeah. it's not 
something that you would have just picked up yesterday. No, I'm, I'm guessing it started on myself. I was being creative on myself before I was creating any creative output. Right. Um, that's the only way I could explain it. I mean, going through university and A-levels, you know, that was just survival. Mm. Um, after university, I then started in engineering companies mm. which um, in the end we weren't that very creative but um, no it was fitting myself into business world I guess was how it started and I've spent I guess the last 15 years making myself as an efficient worker as possible which in- means I'm exploring new ways of working I'm experimenting on myself to mm. see if they're working so probably the creativeness came out in initially in rebuilding myself and then actually creating something would have started with my children you know when you sit down with your children and you're drawing together and or you're sitting down and you're building something you know that's when creating something artistic would have started so i'm so happy that you said that because uh, in the previous episodes that we've recorded of this program, which have been uh, a soliloquy on my part, actually, because I was exposing different ideas, I've actually discussed this because I feel that this is a very uh, an intimate um, experience of creation, is procreation mm-hmm. in the truest sense of the word. And I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I'll say this again because you're listening and also because it's relevant, that when you have children, you realize that you're not just bringing them up. It's in interaction with them that you become the kind of person that is required to bring up the kids as they are required to be brought up. And this is such an intimate uh, you know, relationship of the creator and the thing that he has created. It's like a mini-verse in itself. And it's, I'm so happy that you actually brought it up on your own. So uh, this not only proves my theory, but also uh, gives a, an idea that we're, we're on the same page. So let's talk a little bit more about the products of creation, mm-hmm. creativity that you've, you've, okay. uh, you've um, uh, done in the last few years. Okay, so um, what I concentrate these days on is photography and uh, writing. Um, the writing's the most important, to be honest. I started a blog back in 2016, not long after we uh, relocated here to Tokyo. And I'd been trying to start a blog. I'd told myself I'd start a blog for about six years. But always before, I, I wanted to have a perfect blog before it even started. So I'd mapped out a very complicated plan of the the posts I was going to make, the order I was going to make them in, I'd got three written and revised and checked and rewritten and revised and I was working on the fourth and I was cleverly interweaving them so they were building up in a whole series and it just got ridiculous. I never actually got past writing the Word document. So finally, in about March 2016, I started writing the blog. And it was like the dam gates had burst. <laughs> you know, I was I sometimes even got five or six posts a week, a week done. Yeah. Now, 
being me, I thought, you know, I know how to, well, I don't know how to write, I'm, I, but I'm going to keep it short. So the majority of my first blogs were about 350 pages long, uh, words long. Yeah. And um, I'm looking at other people's that have done a thousand words and going, well, there's a lot of fluff in there. You know, I could write that much shorter. So in the end, my style is short. Mm-hmm. I'm up now to 700 right. as a standard uh, blog right. post. So that was the writing, um, is, was the start of it. Right. Was, it um, uh, uh, w- was it like you had discovered something in yourself? Was it like coming to this hidden treasure that had been lying there? Well, I've, I've always been a deep thinker. Hmm. Um, I mean, to do all this analysis on myself, you have to be. I've always been a deep thinker. And um, the reason I started writing was I wanted to get myself known outside of you know the company I worked in so I thought if I write on personal development issues and things that you know people might start hearing about me it then morphed into quite a wide selection of topics because rather than sitting down and going right today I'm going to write about this I would just always have a notepad on me and just whatever came to mind you know one time I was on a subway train on the way home from work and I looked around and I noticed that everybody in the carriage was on their mobile phone I said okay well when are they thinking and um, then that got me thinking and before I'd got home I'd actually written a whole blog post Um, and it was about you know the fact that this mindless consumption of whatever's on your phone there's a lot of people who aren't taking any time on their own to be with themselves and reevaluate their life. That's true. And how long goes past when they're not doing anything. That's true. And so, yeah, so... And then I started getting people, friends messaging me, saying that, you know, they were finding it helpful. I'd got a friend who um, had been in a job that she was trained to do and she felt trapped in for quite a while and you know through things I was writing she was feeling confident enough to try and find something else so even though not many people write read my things my my posts when people were commenting to me that saying they were finding it helpful like I've got this silly rule of three that the first time you do something you don't not going to do a very good job the second time you're beginning to find an idea, the third time you're probably about there. And she read that and she said, oh, thanks, because for an experiment at work, I'm volunteering at something and I've just come back from the first day and I'm not going back because it was terrible. And then I read your blog post and it made me think, oh, well, it was the first time. I'll go back again. And she said she went back again and it went better. And actually, she's been able to change to do something more similar wow, to that. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, at this point, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the creative process because um, it's very interesting. So there are two elements. One is the product that you generate. Mm-hmm. That's your thoughts, your ideas. But there is something that inspires it. And then there's something that comes out of it, the response and the feedback. Mm-hmm. How important are these two starting and ending points for your product to sustain or be meaningful for you? Um, well, 
sometimes I've got to the point where I've I've decided I don't want to do the blog anymore, mm. and then I'll get a message from a friend that said that something really helped them, and I go, okay, then I'll continue it. Um, but then at that point, I was kind of writing for the wrong reasons. You know, I was I was looking at you know, my number of hits, the amount of reading I was getting, and that was the most important thing. Um, but then I was, um, I was looking to do a change in my life and I thought this blog might be the way of doing it. So that was important. Um, these days now, you know, that bit doesn't bother me. It's nice to hear if someone likes it, but what I actually find, the, perp the process of actually creating a blog um, post actually makes connections in my brain on topics that I've not even considered and that is exciting for me it's almost like writing a diary it's it gives it gives sometimes some completely different parts of my life and my experience it connects them together in a way that I would not have found had I not been writing about something so quite often I'll just freely write um, and then I'll look at it once it's written and, you know, try and find a common thread from what I've done right. and then rewrite it around that common thread. On others, I'll have one particular idea and I want to write about that and I will then try and put some um, structure to my writing because I've learnt, you know, I'm the same. If I, when I'm looking at someone else's work, I'll read the first paragraph and the last paragraph, and that might be enough. So I've I've learned to structure mine the same way. So put the um, kind of the summary at the top, and then the conclusion at the bottom, and then the middle bit builds the the argument. For the interested reader who wants to dig deeper. That's right. Yes. So I again I echo I probably echo the same points that you've made and it's reassuring to see that many uh, you know the creative process is similar somewhat similar in all so initially I found uh, that I was very bent on the praise that I received for my writings mm. but I had to grow over it and since then the process has, has become self uh, self-sustaining because it's just the joy of creating something mm. new that is more important now than and the likes and the the comments are you know they are the the, the, the interest or the yeah. or the bonus and not the real not yeah. the real thing so what i find taking something i've written and then getting it ready to actually publish i can write something in half an hour or an hour that i'm happy with but i would never publish right it could then maybe take another three hours to get it ready for publication. So depending on the mood I'm in, I might actually write something that I never publish. So they say that creative people are perfectionists. Is that true? <sighs> um, yes and no. I think more no for me. Mm. I'm one of the, the freeing things of my background is I've... I've been able to leave perfectionism behind and also I've been, I've been able to leave expectations behind. Mm. You know, I've lived in five countries, which means I'm not normal anywhere. <laughs> and because I'm not normal, I can basically decide to be who I want. Yes. Um, and so 
I was very concerned when I started my blog. I wanted to get it right. Hmm. But then I realised that actually just getting it out and getting it coherent is more important. So um, often the ones that take me longer to write are the ones that I've got a specific image or a specific point I want to make. If I, I've written a couple when I've been commenting on the amount of time people put into their phones or the amount of time they put into you know, being anywhere but with themselves. Right. I've got a particular idea in mind and I don't want it to come across wrongly. So that will take me longer to write. Whereas others, if it's about, you know, my dyslexic experience or, you know, something else, it can be done very quickly. I am very aware of the fact that we are actually running out of time. I try to keep my blogs about 20 minutes, but it was so interesting talking to you that I lost track of time. And I think we've got a lot more to discuss as well. So what I'd like to do now is to thank you for being here, cut the program short at this stage, and maybe we can take up another topic at another time. Hopefully in the subsequent um, episodes, I may use references of my talk with you uh, if it becomes pertinent. But right now, as you can imagine, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you very much. uh, I look forward to seeing you again. Is there anything you would like to say to our listeners regarding um, creative uh, pursuits, mm-hmm. one, some golden words that they can use as uh, guidelines? Okay, I, as I said, I was very worried about developing or having the right voice when I started writing and it was only after writing that I realised you had to practice your creativity to develop your voice. So for me that was a voice, if it's photography you've got to develop it to get your eye. Right. So just go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. On that note, this is Arshia Kasim, and with me is David Weech, and we've been talking about creativity. See you next time. Bye.